I love hearing the stories of those in our church and how God is working in their life. And it's just so encouraging to hear the testimonies of people just giving praise and honor to the glorious things that Christ is doing in their life. And so uh, this morning we had the privilege of just continuing that hearing uh, Mark's story. I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to James chapter 2. To James chapter 2. We're going to go to a passage here this morning, um, verses 14 through 23. And in this series that we've been walking through, Faith Has a Face, uh, we've been talking a lot about faith and how it is very applicable to who we are. I mean, faith is really the, the foundational core to everything that we are as believers in Christ Jesus. We know that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And so faith is an important word for us to understand. It's an important word for us to wrap our minds around. It's important for us to understand what it means to be people of faith. And so that's what we're trying to accomplish in this series. And the, the message this morning is titled Faith in Action. Faith in Action. James is going to deal with this a little bit, and we're going to dive in and just dig deep into this uh, understanding. But, you know, as I was watching Mark's story this morning, as I was just watching that with you here, uh, I, I started thinking about the reality that the timing couldn't be more perfect to hear his story uh, this morning as we begin to, uh, begin to dive into this text. Because I believe that Mark's story is not a lot different than a lot of people's stories to where, you know, people come to that place uh, growing up in the Bible Belt where uh, you are exposed to Christ. Uh, maybe you grew up in a church. Maybe you didn't. But, but in this area, this culture, it's going to be real hard to just live through your life without hearing about Jesus. And so many people hear about Jesus and many people at an early time in their life, they give their life to the Lord. They surrender to Christ. And many times they don't really even know what that means. They just understand the basics like Mark was testifying here a while ago. You know, he just went down. He said, I want to be baptized. He just knew God was doing something in his life. But as he got older, he began to gain more perspective on what it means to be a follower of Christ Jesus. And I think we see that all the time in the life of the church. Many people come in youth ministry and college ministry and they want to rededicate their life. Uh, many people uh, come to that place where they, they come down. They say, listen, this happened to me when I was uh, you know, six years old, but, but I, I've gained so much more understanding. And I, I just, I want to be a true follower of Christ. And, and you can see that in people's life, they begin to gain more perspective of what it means to truly be a person of faith. I know in my own testimony, that's my story where, you know, uh, I, I got saved at the age of 23. And, and for so many years, it was almost as though that place of salvation, I just kind of camped out there for many years. And then one day, it was like God opened my eyes to so much more uh, to this thing called Christianity. He opened my eyes to so much more to to, to what it means to be a person of faith and be a follower of Jesus. And so many of us can relate to that story. Many of us here today probably have something very similar to that as well. Well, this morning, uh, my, my prayer is, is that we will all gain more perspective as we look at what it means to be a person of authentic faith. And like I said earlier, I really want to dig into this. I want us to to think about what James is saying here in this passage. We've been walking through different pieces of, of James and we've been kind of relating that to Hebrews uh, chapter 11 where we see this whole list of people who were people of faith and we're, we've been attempting to put a face with the faith 
and, and help us to personalize these stories that we see in God's word. And so this morning, we wanna continue to do that. Uh, but we're gonna start this morning uh, with James uh, chapter two as we begin this, this, uh, this message today. Now, I wanna warn you, this isn't the easiest passage to understand. In fact, uh, for years and years and years, for hundreds of years, for thousands of years maybe, I guess, uh, this has been one that people have wrestled with and entire doctrines are established based off of this passage and some believe one way and some believe another. And so we're gonna be talking about that as we dive into God's word. But it's, it's not the easiest to understand. And, and in fact, these days it's very controversial in fact. But uh, the, it, it's really amazing how many people really struggle with this as we, as we go through this. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he once called the book of James a strawy epistle. Just talking about it being one of these things where it's just like a pile of straw. You know, it was just, it was just hay to him. I mean, he, 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 there was a lot of parts where uh, I'm sure he, he was able to work through being the theologian that he was, but he acknowledged that it was complicated, that it, it, it said things that kind of caused him to question. And, uh, and as you know, he was one who, who preached justification by grace alone and by Christ alone. And so because he was so insistent on that theology, which is what we hold as well to this day, that we are saved by God's grace alone. We don't save ourselves. Our works cannot save us. And that's the essence of what he was teaching that when he gets to passages like we're gonna look at today, it was one that it, it raised a lot of questions. And so I think it's important that we dive into passages like this because you will encounter the things that we're gonna talk about today as you live out your life and your faith and follow Christ. And so it's important that we understand what exactly is it that the Bible is teaching us concerning our faith and our faith in action. And so we wanna look at that this morning as we dive into this. Now, here's, here's what's really, really interesting to me. James starts off by asking a question, and I mentioned last week how I love to ask questions, right? I, I think asking myself a question as I dive into a passage of Scripture is one of those things that just really gets my juices flowing. It helps me to, to really question what it is I'm about to read, or, or even after I read something, I ask myself questions, and it helps me process, well, here I don't have to ask you a question because James asked it for us. And I love that, that he's starting off this, this passage, this passage we're going to be looking at with a question. And so we're going to dive into this this morning and see what it is that he asked. But James starts off in verse 14. And this is what he says. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? And so this is a legitimate question that he asked. But you see, the problem lies in the way that James is asking the question. It's a rhetorical question. He's not asking for a response from anybody. In fact, he already knows the answer. He's just proposing this as a rhetorical question to get people thinking about what it is that he wants to communicate. And so he asked this question. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? He says, can that faith save him? And so here's why we see that Martin Luther had such a hard time with this is because James seems to be contradicting what the gospel has already taught us in other passages, that we are indeed saved by faith and faith alone. 
that we are saved by grace. There is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. The Bible is clear on that. The gospel is clear on that. Other passages are clear on that. And yet, James, he brings this idea of being saved by works, and he's sort of proposing this to those whom he's asking. And as he throws this out there, he says, you know, think about this. He, it's almost as though he's sort of playing devil's advocate, although, you know, he's led by the Holy Spirit, not the devil. But, but he throws this out there, and he, he, he asks this very important question, which should cause us to really think about what it is that he is proposing and to really dig deep to try to find the answer of the question in which he's asking. And so I think that's his intent. And well done, James, you've got our attention, right? I mean, we, we're, we're starting to wonder about this. We're starting to, to try to process this. And so we look at this, but I, I'm convinced that as we go to the, the word of God carefully and we study together and we dive into God's word, we can reconcile what James is teaching with the teachings of Jesus and with the teachings of Paul and the other passages of scripture that we see here. Because this is what we know. The Bible doesn't contradict itself, does it? So we know that. We know that, you know, the Bible can't say one truth over here and a completely opposite truth over here. The Bible speaks the truth. It is the word of God. And so as we know that, we, we understand that truth. We see something like this. We have to go to work at trying to understand what it is that he is saying. Now, let me, let me just be real clear what James is not arguing here, because I think this is important for us to understand. James is not arguing that works are required for faith or for salvation. He's not arguing that. He's not, he's not saying that, though a lot of people may land there because of this passage. He's not presenting that. I don't believe one bit that that's his intention of saying. He's not arguing that works are required for faith or salvation. And James is also not arguing that works must be added to faith to be saved. And so, in other words, James is not saying, you know, that, that we need to attach works to our faith on the front end or on the back end. He's not, you know, he's not uh, insinuating in any way that somehow if we're going to be saved that works plays into that. And so it becomes very important for us to understand this. He's, he's simply proposing a question that gets us thinking, and, and, and he wants us to understand, though, that faith is an action as well as what it is in, in just knowing who Jesus is. And so here's what James is arguing. Uh, James is arguing that authentic biblical faith will be evident by our works, in other words, as he, as he throws this out and the whole purpose of this passage that he is about to present to us, he is helping us to understand that if a person is saved, there will be works. The works will be a part of that person's life as a result of the salvation, as a result of what Christ has done in their life. And so he's gonna propose things to us. He's gonna say, you know, show me your faith without works and I'll show you a faith that's dead. He's gonna say, this, this can't be. He's not saying it has to be added to your faith for salvation, but what he's saying is a person who knows Jesus will be a person of works. And so this is what he is proposing to us and it becomes very important that as we dive into this that we understand this because this is a big, big difference that he is making here. This is huge. This is something that we need to understand. Uh, and, and what he is proposing here is he is saying to us, he says, where there's a lack of works, 
there may also be a lack of faith. So he's not talking about us adding it. He's talking about it being a result of the work that God has already done in our life. And so we have to understand that. We must understand that. So let's look at this passage together. James chapter two, starting with verse 14 and going all the way through verse 23. This is what he says. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith and does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. But if someone will say, you have faith and I have works, then what James says is he says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And then he says, you will believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, though, and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by his works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and the faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Now there are basically two things that I believe James is trying to make, two, two points he's trying to, to help us to understand as we read through his writings here. And the first one is this, is that faith alone saves you but that faith will never be alone. Let me say that again. Faith alone will save you, but that faith will never be alone. You see, what James is saying is, he says that faith is all that is needed to save you. Faith is, we are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ Jesus, but that faith, if it's authentic, if it's genuine, if it's real, that faith, that saving faith that makes you a, a believer, a follower, a Christian, that, that faith that that leads you on a path of Christianity, if it's real, it will be accompanied by works. And so he is talking about works being a part of a Christian's life, but he's also making very clear that faith alone saves. And so we, we see this and we begin to, to try to understand this. He says here in verse 17, he says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And then he says this. He says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So what James is saying here is he's saying that when there's true salvation, there will be evidence of that salvation. That's the simple gist of what he is communicating here. He says, if there is salvation in the heart, if, a, if God has transformed the heart and the mind and the soul of an individual to where that person is now a disciple of Jesus, there will be evidence. You can actually see the fruit of their salvation. You can see that there are things that this person does that are differently than maybe they did before. And so you see the works of their Christianity. And so the works becomes the evidence of the faith. 
Yesterday, uh, we got back, Linnell and I, we had gone up to uh, Statesboro. Our family had gathered together after a year uh, after my dad had passed away. And, and so we just had this little family gathering. And, and so we were all headed back and, and Linnell actually ended up in separate cars. And so uh, I was ahead of her by a little ways and she had gone to run an errand before she came to the house. And as I pulled into the house, I'm pulling into my driveway. Now remember, we're empty nesters. The kids are gone, right? And so we're pulling into my driveway and there's sidewalk, uh, sidewalk chalk all over my driveway. And immediately I said, whose kids have been in my, I mean, I, I, I pretty much reacted, which is not a way I really should react because I know that the rain will wash it away. My only question is when will it rain, right? And so I got chalk all over my, my driveway and I'm like, whose neighborhood kids came over here and drew chalk? I mean, don't they have a driveway? Don't they have a sidewalk, you know? But they chose mine to draw all this artistic work. And I had to admit, it was pretty nice. I mean, it was, it was pretty interesting what all they drew. It was all really pleasant, you know? And, and so I kind of looked at it and I thought, well, kinda, it's gonna grow on me a little bit. But it was obvious to me that somebody had been to my house. Then I opened the, um, the garage door and I walked through the garage. And um, as I went into the house, I started heading around to the bathroom and I looked on the floor and there was a little label and it said $5. And I knew what that label was because I've seen them before. That's the kind of label you put on an item that you sell at a yard sale. And then it dawned on me. Linnell had given Gabe and Callie and their children apparently permission to come and use our driveway while we were gone as a yard sale. And they made $600, so I'm really excited for them, amen? So it was really good. But here's the point I'm trying to make. There was evidence that somebody had not only been outside of my house, but as I went inside, there was evidence that somebody was inside my house. I knew that that $5 sticker did not belong there. I knew that it wasn't there when I left, so there was evidence. I'm starting to look around the house like we have an intruder, you know, and then it dawned on me what Linnell had told me that they would be using our house. There was evidence of their presence. In the same way, James is saying this. He says, show me your faith. Show me the evidence of your faith. I want to see the evidence. He says, because a person who's going to claim to be a follower of Christ Jesus, who is not showing their faith by their works, they're not saved by those works. They're, those works have nothing to do with their justification, with their redemption, has nothing to do with that. But if a person is truly an authentic follower of Christ Jesus, there will be faith in the form of action. And so here we see this proposal that he is making. Now, please hear me. I, here's, here's the thing. If I don't say this a hundred times, somebody's going to walk out of here today. They're going to go eat lunch with a friend from somewhere else, and they're going to say, what did y'all talk about today? What did your pastor have to say? And he says, yeah, he says, we got to go out and work for our salvation. That is not what I'm saying. Please don't go out of here. That is not what we're, that's not what I believe the Bible is teaching. Let me show you a passage here in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It makes this clear. It says this. It says, Paul is writing to the Ephesian church and he says this. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. I want you to say that with me here this morning, okay? 
by faith, by grace, you have been saved through faith. Will you say that with me again? By grace, you have been saved through faith. That's it. Okay? He continues and he says, it's not of your own doing. If we were saved by our works, it would be of our own doing. Amen? And then he says this, in case you're still not clear about this, he continues on and he says this, it is a gift of God, verse nine, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We're saved by God's grace. You know what's so beautiful about that? What really gives me warm fuzzies about that is the reality that God loved me so much that by grace he saved me. You know, I mean, we talk about this all the time, but I just want to say this again this morning. Grace is receiving that which you don't deserve. So here's what this means. When the word of God says you have been saved by grace, it's saying this. It says you don't deserve salvation. David Rogers doesn't deserve salvation. None of us deserve salvation, but God gave it to us by his grace, by his mercy, by his forgiveness. Isn't that beautiful? Would you just praise Jesus this morning for the reality that he has saved you by grace? Can we praise him this morning for that beautiful truth? This is, this is what makes God so beautiful to me. Because while I was yet still a sinner, Christ saved me. And let me just say this, at age 23, I was sinning like a sinner, right? I mean, I was just living my life in my own self. I was in my own life. I mean, there was nothing, you know, and while I was in that state, Jesus said, I'm gonna save that young man. I'm gonna change his life. He's gonna love me. And as a result of him loving me, I mean, me loving him, he's gonna love me. And that's exactly what he did in my life. He changed my life. Every one of us sitting here that have been saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, we have a story, amen? We have a story. And it's the same story. It's the story of grace. It's the story of faith. It's the story of God doing something remarkable in our life even though we don't deserve it. That's what's so beautiful about God's grace. And so here we see that James is proposing this. Another passage that we must look at before we head on is Romans 3.28, which says this, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So there it is again. We are saved by faith apart from the works of the law. Okay, so what is it exactly that James is saying here? As we look at this, we realize he's saying faith alone saves you, but that faith will never be alone. He's saying that it is accompanied by works. And so we understand that he is not talking about salvation here necessarily, but he is talking about the result of the faith that we have in Christ Jesus. And he, he goes on in several of these saying that if we say we have faith, if we say we have faith, yet we do not have works, then our, our faith is dead. He uses this word dead. In fact, he uses it several times in this passage. You know, I was thinking about that on our, on our property. We have this tree, and I, this winter I was looking at this tree, and I was somewhat suspicious that this tree was dead. I mean, it was, uh, I don't know what killed it. Maybe children writing chalk. I don't know. But, but anyway, it, this tree, it looked dead to me. I don't, I, I, but I really couldn't tell because 
at this time of the year, all the trees back in the winter, all of them had dropped their leaves and it didn't really look any different than any other tree among the trees. I mean, there it was. There was all these trees, but it just looked a little bit different. And then as spring came, I started noticing all the other trees were beginning to bud out, right? They're beginning to produce these leaves and ultimately they'll produce acorns or whatever, they'll produce the fruit. And so it began to bud out and, and then as, 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 as it started getting warmer and warmer, it started really leafing out, but not this tree. And so now everything's pretty much uh, budded out. Even the pecan trees are in, you know, they're full force right now and, and pecan trees, everybody knows around here, they're the last to come in and guess what? This one tree is dead. It's dead. It, it, it has no leaves. In fact, the branches are falling off now. There, there is evidence that it is dead. Why? Because there's no fruit. There's no evidence. There's nothing happening there. The faith, uh, our faith when it is lacking works is dead. Not because we're saved by it, because of the evidence of it. And so now that works that James is talking about, I want to I wanna dig into this a little bit because I think this is important. You know, I, I've often wondered, what is James referring to when he says works? And when he uses this word works, now we can use a bunch of things. We could say serving children, that's a work, right? Or serving in the children. Or we could say going out on missions, that's a, that's a work, that's a that's a, something we do, right, as a, as a result of being saved. We minister to other people. That could be a works. We take the gospel to our community. That could be a works. But is that really what James is talking about? Since he's so adamant at adding works to this faith, is that really what he's talking about? And, and looking in this, it, it, it looks to me as though James is sort of presenting uh, exactly what he's talking about when he uses this word works earlier in his letter. If we go back to uh, James chapter one, verse 12, James talks about the crown of life which God promised to those who love him. And so he makes reference to loving him. And then later in 2.8, he talks about the royal law according to scripture is you shall love your neighbor as himself. And so he's talking about something as he's writing this letter in chapter one and in verse two, he, he mentions two things which we come to know as very important because Jesus revealed this to us as well. But he's talking about two things. He's talking about loving God with all of your heart and he's talking about loving each other. He talks about this this reality that, that God is pleased with us when we love him with everything that we are. And then he talks about the the royal crown. He talks about uh, this royal law, I mean, of scripture being, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's how Jesus put it out there. And James took one and a half chapters to present that to us. But here's what Jesus said when he answered some religious leaders' question, when they said, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said this, he says, love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And then he says, the second is like it. I almost wonder why they didn't say, well, that's enough. But he went ahead and gave them number two. They didn't ask for it, but he gave it to them. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what James is referring to. And I look at this and I often wonder, is James sort of pointing to this idea, this first and second greatest commandment where he says, love God and love people? Because here's the reality. There's not a single one of us in here that is truly an authentic follower of Christ Jesus who doesn't love God. 
You can't be a Christian. Don't call yourself one, please. You can't be a Christian if you don't love God and love people. So don't come in here pretending to be a Christian and yet there's not a love for God. Don't come in here pretending to be a Christian when you don't love others as yourself. Jesus has presented this to us. Jesus is the one we follow. Jesus is the one that we call Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He is the one who we call Savior of our life. He is the one who we have named ourselves after with him being the Christ and we are the little Christians or the little Christ. That's what Christian means. And so let us not pretend that we are followers of Christ Jesus if we don't love God and if we don't love people. Jesus said this is the first and greatest commandment. To love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And James is referencing this as he's writing through this letter. I don't, I don't know if that's what he really is referring to here or not, but it's a, it's a pretty good indication that maybe he is. He's talking about faith. He's talking about having faith in God and loving God with everything that we are. And as he has this conversation, he's pointing to something being attached to our faith. What work could be so important that we would just stand on it with faith? And the only thing I can think about is love God, love people. Powerful, powerful. Now, that's the first thing that I wanted to mention to you. Faith alone saves you, but that faith will never be alone. Here's the second point I wanna make, and I think that James is making here. Faith alone saves you, but that faith has fruit. Faith alone saves you, but that faith will have fruit. This is just a continuation. You know, here, here's what he's basically saying. James is saying there is a cause and effect taking place here. There is a cause and an effect. In other words, you are saved by God's grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And as a result of that, there is fruit in your life. He doesn't use that word. He uses the word works, but he's referring to the result of something happening as a basis of you being saved by Christ. And so he throws this out to us. And here's what the effect is, as I understand it in scripture, is that we will trust God and obey God. We will always trust God and obey God. Because of our faith, the real faith, we will trust God. And what happens next is that James puts a face with this faith. You see, James has just revealed to us that faith uh, will always be accompanied by works. That our faith in Christ Jesus, as a believer in Christ Jesus, we will have that, that works that accompanies our faith. But then he wants to give us an example of this, and he does this by putting a face with the faith, and the face that he gives us is the face of Abraham. And so as we continue reading, we begin to see this. We see where he reveals this to us, he, he puts this. Look at verse 20 and 21 with me. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And so he's saying to us here, he's helping us to understand that faith, if there's no works, then you could pretty much not see the evidence of faith. And so he lays that out there, and then he says this. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. 
And so here's what James says. He says, you wanna see faith? I'll show you faith. Take a look at Abraham. Take a look at Abraham's life. James says, this is important. This is extremely important. But if you wanna see how faith in action is played out, then this is what you see. We can look at this man's life, we can study his life, we can see all that the scriptures say about this man, and we can see that his faith is being played out by his actions, and when we examine Abraham's life, then what we see is that here was a man who trusted and obeyed God. And so he ties this cause and effect together with this tremendous faith. As he personalizes faith, as he helps us to understand how we can look at a real life story, we saw one here this morning as we looked at Mark's story, we could do the same if we looked at your story, but what James did is he pointed to another story, a story that he was familiar with, and it was the story of Abraham. And if any of us, if we grew up in church, we've probably heard the story, and in fact, uh, Uh, you know, later on in the summer, we're gonna do a whole sermon on the story of Abraham. We're gonna do a character study with him and I'm excited to bring you this story. But, But what James is doing here is he's pointing to a man who did something remarkable because of his faith. He did something that as we look at this man's life, we begin to realize, man, he showed us his faith, his trust and his obedience to God by his actions. It's not because Abraham was a superhero. He was just a man like you and I, but he did trust God, even though he probably didn't understand what was happening in his life. Let me read this to you. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 and 18. We read these words. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Faith has its effect. That effect is trust and obey, not a requirement for salvation. It is a result of someone whose life has been transformed by God. And here we have a story that we have to go back to Genesis chapter 22 if we wanna understand what it is that he is talking about here. If we're not familiar with the story, we're not gonna read it this morning, but I encourage you to go back and read the story of Abraham, study the story of Abraham. But in Genesis chapter two, it tells us that Abraham was told by God to take his only son, to take him and to offer to him as a burnt offering. This is what this means. It means that this man was to take his only son, one that he had prayed for, one that he had desired, this only son, his only child, to take him and to offer to him as a human sacrifice, to take his own life. The son asked his dad when they're getting ready to go, Dad, where is the offering? Where, where is the ram that we're gonna sacrifice? The, the son is old enough to be very much aware of what's happening. He knows they're going to offer a burnt offering. And as they prepare to go, he's questioning, where's the ram? And, and he says to his son, the Lord will provide a sacrifice. And so off they go, and they go away. And, and just 
just imagine, if you will, what might have been going through Abraham's mind as he travels for several days going to a place where there will be an altar built and there he would lay his son and take his life. Just think about that for a moment. Allow that to set in. The trusting of God, the obedience toward God. I am certain as a father and as a grandfather, I am certain that that would not have been on my list of things to do. In fact, it would have been something that I would have highly rejected personally. There would have been no way I wanted to do that. And yet this man, not knowing why, not understanding, was just faithful to follow God. He was faithful to trust and he was faithful to follow. And he just believed in God so strongly. And they get there. And now get this. I, I, this is where the heartbreak for me as I read this story, where it really becomes personal. And I just, I just struggle with this, even as a, as a daddy and as a granddaddy, just thinking about what Abraham must have gone to. It says that he bound his hands and his feet. He was preparing to do what no father would ever want to do. Now, praise God, I'll go ahead and tell you the story because I don't want you to leave here just really wrestling with that. If you don't know the story, God spared the son. God said, you have been faithful. You have trusted. You have obeyed. You know what's really interesting about Abraham's life? You see, before, Ab before that incident in Abraham's life, there were some, some, some things that Abraham did that just weren't really on par. He lied to Pharaoh about his wife, gave her up. <laughs> you know, I mean, he just, there were things that he was doing, but nowhere in Scripture after that story does it see that Abraham was nobody other than a person of true faith and trust and obedience. God called him to do the unimaginable. And he was faithful. I can only imagine that there were tears streaming down his face as if he had thought about what he had to do. But God was bigger in his life than anything else. God was bigger in his life than anything else. There are so many times in our life where God calls us to give up something that we care so deeply for. And it's never easy. It's never easy. And yet God desires more than anything that we would trust and obey. Trust and obey. So James says here, faith alone saves you, but that faith, it will have a fruit, it will have a cause and effect. You know, I read this story. As I read the story of Abraham, I think of this truth. You cannot separate your behavior from your beliefs. Let me say that again. You cannot separate your behavior from your belief. What is so obvious to me is the belief that Abraham had that God was faithful, that he was bigger, that he was good. As 
as a result of that, he believed, he believed, and he was faithful. Verse 23, it says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous as he was called a friend of God. Faith apart from the love of God and the trust in God and the obedience toward God is a dead faith. It cannot be apart from those things. And what the scripture teaches us is that faithfulness to trust and obey is one of the most critical things that we could ever do. James 2, 26 says this, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I remember when I was planning Cross Point Church about 13 years ago, I remember going to a church planning conference. I didn't know what I was doing. Linnell and I were very ill-prepared for planning a church. We just knew that God had called us to do it, and that's, that's pretty much all we knew, you know. I remember somebody asking, how much money you got? And I said, $17. That's about it. But I remember going to this conference, and uh, while we were there, a group of us church planners started gathering together and started talking about different things. And one of the things I noticed is that the church planners that were gathered there with me, I didn't know some of them, but they were from all different places. Most of them big cities, Boston and Los Angeles and Detroit and, you know, places that we know to be sort of very dark places spiritually. You know, there's just not a lot of believers. And I remember one of the guys, he says, David, where, where are you planning? And I said, oh, down in South Georgia, Valdosta, Georgia. And he said, oh, the Bible Belt. Well, you planted where it was easy. And for a split second, I had no idea how to answer him. I realized he was mocking me to some degree. He was teasing, but, but I didn't have to answer because one of the guys that was standing there answered before I could even say anything. And he says, easy. He said, easy. He's not only going to the Bible Belt, he's going to the buckle of the Bible Belt. And you see, the problem that exists in the Bible Belt is everybody just thinks they're saved. He says, we go to places where people already know they're lost as a ball in high grass, right? Think about that one for a minute. Little one-liner to take home with you. Lost as a ball in high grass. I don't even know where I got that from. But he says, David's going to a place where everybody grew up in church and everybody thinks they're saved and everybody thinks they have faith. And most of them don't. David has the responsibility of convincing them that they're lost and not saved and then presenting the gospel to them. And I thought, yeah, I'm going where it's hard. That's the most difficult place on earth. And it has been. Because I think all of us, including myself, that grew up in church, if we're not careful, we just assume so much about our faith or, or our, should I say, our Christianity. 
when there's really a lack of faith and really a lack of trust in Christ and a lack of obedience to Christ. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. We grow up thinking we're Christian just because our grandmother and our great-grandmother and everybody else. This weekend, my, my mom gave me my dad's Bible that he had been given when he was just a kid. It was like from 1672 or something. It was old, man. Thing had names in it. I only knew one, and that was my grandmother. I got to figure out who the rest of them are. Had names written all in that thing, but we grow up in this culture, and we think that that we can ride the coattails of our ancestors. Yeah, I'm a Christian. James says, check that. James says, I challenge that. James says, show me. Show me. Very important question. For us all to ask. My prayer this morning is that we would take the gospel to heart and that we would use it to evaluate who we are and realize that faith alone and only alone saves you, but that faith will never be alone. There will never be just faith for a person who is genuinely saved by Christ. My prayer this morning is as we've walked through this passage that you've come to this realization that maybe maybe there needs to be life change that takes place in your life. Maybe for some of you here today, there's a, a real need to just turn. When Peter was asked, you know, what, what must we do to be saved? He was preaching and people cried out in brokenness. He was preaching a life that didn't resemble their life. And he was, they cried out to him. They said, what must we do? He said, repent and believe in Christ Jesus. 3,000 people gave their life to the Lord. This morning, as we pray, as we pray out of here, I just challenge you to think about your relationship with the Lord and just know that there is a faith family here. I love the quotes from, the, from these students that they gave talking about the reality that they needed this faith family for their faith. Just realize here, Cross Point, that there is a faith family that loves you and wants to see you grow and flourish in your faith in Christ Jesus. We all do.